First on film and entertainment back in the land of the living, Dave Griffiths. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Good morning, Alex. I'm good. How are you? Oh, fantastic. I mean, three times COVID. We'll talk about that in a moment. Jackie Hamilton, g'day to you. Good morning, Alex. And Peter Krause, come on down. Hi, Alex and everyone. <laughs> now, Dave, come on. I mean, enough already. How many times can one have a COVID and you, you suffered again, didn't you? I did. And, um, yeah, just one of those things that I seem to be able to keep picking up. Um, at least this time I did actually pick it up from an event and not a family member giving it to me. So that's a first. So, yeah. Oh, really? So both other times it's been family, huh? Yeah, yeah. So worse than the first time? Um, each time was different. Um, the first time I remember I had it, um, I was hallucinating and having fevers all the time. The second time I had it, it just felt like a cold, but then I ended up with a lung infection. This time it was just, actually only had two days of, of coughing and then it was just, all I wanted to do was sleep. I had no energy for about a week and a half. So yeah, different every we, time. We're going to have to put six or seven masks around you, Dave. That, that's That's probably about the only thing I can think of. Exactly. Yeah. Oh boy, but you're sounding pretty good. So, I mean, basically, you were, you were waylaid. You said for a couple of days, really badly, but it's taken more than a week, really, to recover, hasn't it? Yeah, just tiredness more than anything. You would, I'd go to sleep and get like eight hours sleep, and wake up in the morning and feel like I'd had no sleep at all. But just aches and pains and things like that. But yeah, every time's been different, which is kind of says something about the virus, I guess. Now, having said that, you've picked up a new dog. What, what's, that, what's that all about? Yeah, so um, some friends of ours had a dog and their child uh, became uh, got a dog allergy. They decided that they needed someone to take the dog. We'd been looking for a dog for a little while, um, and so we've ended up with a beautiful dog called Marvel. Fantastic. And how old's Marvel? Uh, she's two years old and she's uh, Labrador cross Blue Healer with a little bit of Border Collie thrown in there as well. Oh, my golly. Well, good luck. I hope that uh, you and Lee derive a great deal of pleasure, as does Marble, over the yep. next ensuing, well, decade plus, hopefully. Yep, decade, exactly. maybe even. So good stuff. Let's get going. The Phantom of the Opera opened on Friday evening, spectacular new production, Cameron McIntosh, and we have got the music is just magnificent. It's lost nothing. It's been 36 years since it was launched in the West End, and I'll talk about that later in the show. I'm also going to be seeing Titanic, the musical, which is only on for another performance this evening, so be careful that you get along to see it. I saw it many, many years ago at Chapel Off Chapel, but this is a concert production with Anthony Warlow in the lead role. So fantastic entertainment in Melbourne. Get along to see Titanic the Musical. You won't get another chance very quickly. Having said that, let's get going with a movie. In fact, it reminded me of The Family, which is – if you like, that was a cult that had been spoken about and written about. There were documentaries about it. It's a movie called Gloria Vale. Now, Jackie, you've seen this one, haven't you? Uh, no, I haven't, Alex. Oh, it's not Gloria Vale. Sorry. Well, it's not I, widely uh, 
is not widely screening Gloria Vale. Ah, sorry, my mistake. Well, let, let's go to Gloria Vale next. You've seen The Wonder. That's my I mistake. I have seen The Wonder. All right, so let's let's get going with that one. This is 108 minutes. It's M-rated, the church, religious beliefs, medical science, a lot to answer for in this movie. Set in 1862, an English-based nurse called Lib Wright, played by Florence Pugh, travels to small-town Ireland to watch an 11-year-old girl called Anna O'Donnell, played by Killer Lord Cassidy. Killer is K-I-L-A. And the reason for doing this becomes clear. Anna has not eaten for four months. What? Four months? Yep. Seems to be perfectly healthy, though. An august committee's been assembled, which determines that Mrs Wright, this is Lib Wright that I mentioned Florence Pugh plays, and a nun will monitor Anna around the clock for a fortnight. They are required to report their findings independent of each other after the 14 days. Inconceivable as it is, the church is obviously hoping that Anna is indeed a miracle child. When Mrs. Wright, who has attended to soldiers in war, starts her assignment, visitors and Anna's family are freely able to interact with this God-fearing child. But Mrs. Wright tightens the reins and Anna's condition quickly deteriorates, so much so that the girl faces imminent death. And yet this committee wants Mrs. Wright to see it through to the end without intervening to save Anna's life. Meanwhile, a journalist from a London daily named William Byrne, played by Tom Burke, has been dispatched to get the real story. As it turns out, the reporter, Mrs. Wright, Anna and Anna's folks all have devastating backstories which form important parts of this narrative. The director and co-writer with Alice Birch is Sebastian Lelio, and he's created a, a grim drama from a book by Emma Donoghue. It's very much a patriarchal society in which power, politics and religion rule. Do they not, Jackie? Yes, absolutely. And you just said the backstories then of the characters as the as these backstories gently kind of leach out as the film progresses, it's clear that that's a really important part of the narrative um, of the characters. It's a, it's a really odd, quiet sort of film, I thought, and with a very disconcerting undercurrent, this mysterious rituals and superstitions that are going on and the mystery at the centre, of course. Um, and good performances mostly, although I thought Florence Pugh was a bit odd in the role of the of the nurse from 1862. Really? Really? Yeah, do you think? Why, I thought she was magnificent. Why do you think odd? Well, I thought she was... Oscar-worthy, magnificent in Don't Worry Darling, just released recently. Yes. Uh, but in this, I, I just didn't believe her. Uh, part of it, I think, was in the way that she and Anna, the girl, were presented with their beautiful, you know, perfect skin and their plucked eyebrows and their shiny hair, which really was out of kilter with the living conditions that they were in, in these very humble old homes and trekking through the mud to get from one place to another. I really wouldn't have wanted to be a woman in those days dressed in that, you know, bolts of fabric and the, the hem all dragging in the mud. How uncomfortable would that have been? Yeah, but, but this was a time of famine. 
That's, yes. So, well, and the, why well, did their faces look so beautiful and perfect and their skin was perfect and their hair was shiny? It just didn't look right to me. I just didn't believe it. Oh, well, I, I, I totally disagree. I, I think that Florence Pugh is staunch and compelling in the lead. She's intense. She carries this sort of don't mess with me attitude, somebody in control in terms of her own domain, notwithstanding the fact that she's, she's subjugated to the, the committee. And and I reckon she continues to build on a, on a really fine body of acting work that she's quickly sort of bringing to the fore. I mean, she's only a young woman. What, she'd been her mid to late 20s by now? She's doing a great job, I reckon. And I'm not saying she didn't do a fine performance, Alex, but I just don't think the role was right for her. I Perhaps after it. after having just seen Don't Worry Darling. Yeah, I, there was I just totally, something I totally about it. Disagree and reject what you say. But there you go, difference of opinion. Uh, a sense of dread, though, permeates proceedings, doesn't it, Jackie? Oh, absolutely. And and sorry, just on the characters, I will say that Killer mm. Lord Cassidy, the young girl, Anna, is really very lovely in her role and she's got that incredible composure about herself and there's one scene towards the end where she holds the gaze uh, hold, her gaze holds the camera for an in, almost interminable time and uh, unflinching and uh, uh, she just locks in on you in the audience at that time I thought that was I, th- I thought she was she was excellent in her role the music I didn't like. I thought it was very discordant and kind of modern and it kept distracting me from the story. Wow, Did you think I that agree. as well? Or? Well, I totally disagree. The composer's Matthew Herbert. His score aids that feeling that all's not right. I mean, discordant is it, yeah, probably appropriate. And, and what about the cinematography by Ari Wagner? Did you like that? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, beautiful, especially inside in the interior of their, of their little um Two floor, two double story. Well, I won't say double story because it makes it sound grand, but it's a, but it's a little dark cottage, very grim sort of living conditions with the bedroom, Anna's bedroom in the loft above, um, beautifully shot inside that that dim lighting, uh, very effective. Yeah, a desolate homestead, I would call it. I mean, it, she, this is where Anna spends most of her days, apart from when she wanders outside and, and it's really, it is incredibly isolated, this this place, wherever it might be in, in sort of rural island somewhere. I, I mean, it's interesting. We've got a totally different take on it. So did you like or not like the film, The Wonder? Um, oh, gee, like or not like. If I have to say one or the other, probably not like. Okay, well, I mean, I, I just think the success. I think of you have to really believe it, to believe in it in the film and invest in it, to be taken away with it. And I didn't feel that. No, I, I think there's an interesting element to this because when it starts, there, there's a, a commentary and a writer, and the narrator happens to be the mother of Anna, but she, which we find out later on. But the the, the fascinating part is it's sort of set in a and a movie studio, and it's along the lines of, well, there are these stories that are told, and I found that an interesting device. I'm not sure why that was necessary. I just thought it was terrific. It topped and tailed the film. It did. And also began the focus on eating food, which was the theme of really, I kept going back to the nurse sitting quietly 
eating food, which became a real feature of the film, obviously in opposition to Anna's um, situation. But why was why was it necessary? I'm not saying it wasn't an interesting device, but it could have been done without that, couldn't it? And it would. Well, have, it was an interesting device. That's what it was. That's all it was. Kept, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, kept I, it I, top I, of mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the success of what I think is an independent film, uh, where the reveals come piecemeal, fundamentally gets down to Pew's command of her art, as far as I'm concerned. So, what about you, Peter? I, we're sort of Jackie and I are at loggerheads on this one. You, who are always in a disagreeable mood with me, where are you at with this? I was actually very, very impressed by this ah, film. Very nice. Uh, All right. Uh, I mean... If, no, Jackie, if, you're perfectly entitled to your view, even if it's wrong. Is that right? Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, good idea. Okay, go, Peter. Okay. Look, look, the framing device, uh, Sebastian Lelio, who's the uh, Chilean director of this film, he obviously has used this framing device as a distancing uh, effect so that we don't get too caught up in the story or that the story itself is meant to be believable or have some sort of dramatic resonance. So what I found interesting, and, and Lelio, of course, has done a number of films where he explores human characteristics uh, in an unusual environment or situation. I mean, a fantastic woman, Gloria, disobedience set in an Orthodox Jewish community. Uh, he really makes some challenging films, and this one is equally challenging. And what we are meant to be experiencing or feeling in this film is the whole idea of religious fundamental um, dogma if you like to put it that way, and the impact that has on someone being regarded as a saint or someone having extra abilities that are above human qualities. And so as this film explores this idea of this young girl who may or may not be some sort of religious or saintly figure, uh, which is explored to some extent uh, later in the film, I was very impressed with the uh, all the underlying themes uh, of Ireland in the 18th 1960s, of devout families, of the religious impact, especially seeing Kieran Hines and Toby Jones essentially as part of this um, sort of male patriarchal religious sort of dominant view of the idea of salvation and of miracles. And so all of that combined made this, uh, this Netflix film a really fascinating insight into uh, belief uh, in uh, the 1860s. And yes, uh, Alex, you've mentioned the family, Rosie Jones's film about the cult in Victoria. Mm. And, and there is certainly um, that uh, aspect of influence and power and control um, and whether uh, humans can, um, I suppose, go around that in some way. Well, we'll talk, I, about that. we'll talk about that shortly with Gloria Vale as well. So there's this sort of religious theme that goes through. There is. And I just want to mention Florence Pugh is superb in a very uh, strongly developed character um, with her backstory. I thought it was very impressive uh, in, in the way she depicted the role uh, of strength. Mm, I absolutely agree. The, I, I said before, what a body of work she's building up for a young actor. Really, really impressive. And it, and she continues to do so. And I like the fact that she 
tackles different roles and and you know it's not all same 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 you know you can't categorize her as one thing or another and she can be very she can be very down to earth and 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 very earthy is probably the word one moment and she can be glamorous the next and i i i mean that's the sign of a fine actor so what are you going to give it out of 10 it's it's called the wonder as you mentioned it is a netflix release but you can see it in cinemas and this seems to be the trend for a couple of weeks and then then it disappears and you can only see it on netflix correct that's right. I mean, Power of the Dog was another example. Mm. Where where there are good quality films, uh, then Netflix allows a cinema release first. Well, you can, you can certainly understand also why Netflix films and other streaming services are now well and truly being considered, more than considered, in uh, at the Academy Awards. So, you know, it, it it's uh, there's a transition happening where there's just not enough time to see everything. There's so much going on in streaming services and some weeks there are very few movies released in the cinemas. So, you know, if you're if you're a traditional cinema goer, there's still something to be said for seeing it on a very, very large screen with big sound, is there not, Peter? There is certainly. Uh, it's always better to see something in a cinema <laughs> to get that full experience. Mm, exactly. So what are we going to give the wonder from you? Very impressive film, 8 out of 10. Jackie, I dare say you're not going to be anywhere close to that. Go for it. Well, not so far, because although I do understand what Peter's saying, um, it's uh, and I respect the filmmaking ability that's gone into crafting it, uh, but I had difficulties with it, and I'll give it a 6 out of 10. And I'm giving it a 7. So, okay, we're, we're averaging 7, which is certainly a better than average score. And, yeah, I'd encourage you to go along and see The Wonder if you get the opportunity. Can we, Jackie, I know that you've got various other things on. Can I just hold you for a few more minutes? I want to talk sure. about The Phantom of the Opera. Have you seen that as a musical? Have you ever seen it? Yes. Okay. Some years ago now. I can't even remember how long ago. Well, I mentioned to you at the outset it was 36 years ago since it debuted in London. From recollection, I think that I think that was about 1986, and I believe it made it to I think it was the Regent uh, about 1990. That, that's uh, without looking at any notes or go, or googling it. This is a new production, Cameron McIntosh's new production, and it works a treat. It it is such a masterful piece of work. The hairs on the back of my neck were standing up on Friday night. It was just magnificent. And there's just for those people who may not have seen it or seen, there's a film version of as well. I think that was what two thousand and around about four was it something of that nature. Anyway, the 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 story goes that it is a prologue involving a Paris Opera House auction set in 1919, and then the story turns to events at the Grand Opera. The, the Paris Opera, in 1881. So as the cast is preparing for a new production of Hannibal, the Opera House manager announces his retirement. For a number of years, accidents have been happening regularly at the theatre, and now there is another near miss, which is blamed on the opera ghost. The resident soprano, Carlotta, storms out, and rather than cancel a sold-out performance, and season, a young chorus girl with a well-trained golden voice called Christine Day steps in. The opera's new patron, Raoul, recognises Christine from their childhood and begins to woo her. And it turns out 
that Christine's singing has been inspired by a gifted composer and grossly disfigured man who she's never seen. It's his, the Phantom of the Opera's jealousy, that informs the rest of the narrative as he casts a large shadow over all future productions at the Opera House. So this phenomenal talent at State Theatre, at Arts Centre Melbourne, brings out the very, very best of Phantom. One thing I should say now, Jackie, as somebody who goes to the theatre reasonably regularly, I don't recall whether you've seen Harry Potter with all its magic. Have you? Oh, yes. Okay. Now, were you impressed by that? Uh, I didn't love it. Oh, you didn't? Okay, I did. No, sorry, I didn't. No, no, that's for a – Dave, have you seen that or not? Have you seen Harry Potter? I have, yes, yep. Okay, so did that magic impress you? The magic did. The the story, I thought, could have been a little bit better, but I loved the special effects and everything on stage, yes. All right, so do we agree that Harry Potter moved up the bar when it came to special effects wizardry, yes? Oh, definitely, yeah. I, I sat in the front row the last time I went to see it and I still couldn't pick how they did some of the Correct. things. Now, that is now entering and has entered the Phantom of the Opera. It, it Some of the stuff is just amazing. And Nadine, my wife and I turned to each other and said, what, where did that come from? It, it's fabulous. It adds another element to what is already a magnificent show. And so... Please, if you have seen The Phantom, this is a new staging, a new production. The the light and shade, I, I suppose, you've seen The Phantom as well, have you not, Dave? I have, yes, yeah. Yeah, the light and shade is even more manifest in this particular production. The, the, the way that the sets have been created, there's some wizardry there as well, incredible. You just sort of, you shake your head in disbelief at what you're seeing, and that, that's that's the highest praise that I can sort of attribute to this particular production. So the this talent. Now, I remember the original production and how great the talent was. This is every bit as good. And there's, Dave, again, to, to bring football into it, which I haven't for a couple of weeks because you weren't here last week, do you recall the woman who sang the national anthem at the 2021 grand final? Do you have any recollection of her at all? I do, yes, yep. And how highly praised she was for her efforts. Yep. She's the star of the Phantom of the Opera. Okay. That, that, I mean, in, in ter- she's, she's played for the royal family. She was the star of the show in the West End production of this show as well, and she is at the forefront of this one. She plays Christine Day. And she's an Australian-American soprano called Amy Manford. I think she's 29 years of age. What a star. Unbelievable. The most angelic of voices. Nothing short of breathtaking. And she'd also assumed the role in Athens in Greece. So, And then Josh Pitterman. I've seen a lot of him. The timber in his voice, in his pipes, the angst he displays in the titular role, which he's also played to critical acclaim in the West End, captivating, just extremely impressive. Blake Bowden impresses as Raoul. The confrontational scene where he, Manford and Pitterman cross paths and and sing their lungs out is one of the musical's many, many highlights. There's an Australian-Italian soprano called Giuseppe Grec, Giuseppa, uh, I should say, and I'll try that third time, Giuseppina Grec, 
Giuseppina Gregg, who performs regularly with Opera Australia. She shines as the opera star Carlotta that I referenced earlier in talking about the story. Jade Westerby, I've seen quite a bit of her as well, forced to be reckoned with as the no-nonsense Madame Giry, and Mietta White adds Spark as her daughter Meg. That's just some of the leading cast. The set design I mentioned, Paul Brown is responsible, a visual feast, contrast of light and darkness. You've got the gilt-edged opera house and the phantom's lair. The appearance of steps from out of nowhere as the phantom leads Christine to his quarters via gondola and fog, a stroke of genius. It really is. You sort of, again, wow, how did they do that? We've talked about the pyrotechnics and how they play a significant part in proceedings, as do the special effects. So this, this production of The Phantom of the Opera is fiery both figuratively and literally. The, the choreography, Scott Ambler, has his hands full with scenes involving the full cast. He's done a wonderful job. Costuming is opulent and plentiful, sort of a tableau of creativity, I'd call it, by Maria Bjornsson. And this Phantom would not be as great as it is without the efforts of the lighting designer, Paul Constable, and sound designer, Mick Potter. So all of it comes together, directed by Lawrence Connor, mesmerising production, a theatrical triumph of the highest order. It's playing at State Theatre Arts Centre Melbourne. Brilliant venue. Was Opening night was black tie. It was great to see people dolled up. Really was. I mean, you don't get that very often in theatre these days, but when you go and you see it, there's something extra special about it. Got a lot of, lot of verve, a lot of... I just just sheer enjoyment, and and you can you could tell because people were talking about it in sort of in tones that were, there was adulation for this show as well there should be the Phantom of the Opera playing until the fifth of February. Jackie, are you seeing this version or not? Will, will I see it? Oh no, uh, I'll see how it goes. Okay, see how it goes. Dave, are you intending or you don't? I know? am. Yes. Yep. Fantastic. I, I just can't. I can't imagine anybody could possibly be disappointed. Uh, so, you know, Jackie, a question for you: When you go along to the theatre, and I'm not talking about a normal sort of review, which could be favourable or unfavourable. And Dave, you can sort of join in here as well. How much experimental theatre have you seen? Stuff that you're not quite sure what you're in for. You go along, and you're either thoroughly engaged or totally disappointed. How much of that stuff have you have you seen, Jackie, over the years? Not a lot. I'm a little bit of a traditionalist with live theatre, Alex. That's fair enough. No, no, I, I, mm. I mean, genuine, a genuine question. Okay, so what about you, Dave? You've seen sort of stuff that I suppose is more fringe, have you? Because I've seen you there a few times. Yeah, I go to, I go to a lot of fringe shows and I go to, yeah, a fair bit of experimental um, theatre. One of my best friends puts on a little bit of experimental theatre. So, yeah, I've seen a fair bit. Do you generally find, I mean, from a creative point of view, you can admire the creativity, but do you find it's a little bit hit or miss that the nature of experimental theatre, I suppose, is is such anyway, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Look, I've been to, I've been to seeing shows where five minutes into it, I was wishing I was at home watching TV and <laughs> I've been and seen other shows where I've just absolutely loved it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I can absolutely relate to that. And... Uh, the the what about interactive theatre? Have you seen much of that, where the audience, you know, the fourth wall is broken? Yeah, I actually went to one 
And I hate being asked to get on stage, but I was asked to get on stage for a production that I went and saw in between the lockdowns a couple of years ago. And, um, yeah, I really hated that. Uh, Jackie, have you been called out in, from an audience? Uh, I don't think I have, oh, um, no. actually, Alex. But but the kids always used to get up with the wiggles and things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I speak – this happened to me the other night. I think it was Thursday night. And Nadine, my wife, was called to dance with a cast member in front of a few hundred people. Now, (laughs) I can imagine that's reasonably terrifying for anybody, but this was interactive theatre that I'm talking about, and the name of the production, Day After Terrible Day at TheatreWorks. And I can say that while it's creative, I found it totally perplexing. And I was speaking to people afterwards who found it, you know, this this question mark like the Riddler was on their faces, uh, Dave. So what, what happened? Upon arrival... The patrons were divided into groups and we're, we're led by a couple of, and there's only one way of putting this, Jackie, I'm not trying to insult anybody here, a couple of blonde bimbos to the double doors of what turns out to be an unfinished mansion. Now, when I say blonde bimbos, they were dressed in very vibrant pink. They had latex face masks on and blonde wigs and the way they spoke was decidedly stupid. That's why I'm calling them blonde bimbos. I I think that's the best description I can come up with. And once we were ushered inside, perched on a 10-rung ladder, how do I know that? Because I counted the rungs, at the back of the theatre, which was an oblong space, a large space, is this redhead dressed in white bemoaning what happened to her. So around the room, I counted seven chandeliers. There's a clear cabinet on wheels containing dried flowers and a very, very, very long table, which virtually stretches the length of the the long oblong part of this theatre, upon which sits a five-tier white wedding cake. All right, I hope I'm building this picture. This said woman who is on this ladder utters expressions such as, you said you'd call, you said you'd be here a pledge, a declaration, your word. These utterances are repeated throughout the show. And it turns out that she and her husband-to-be were renovating their forever home and preparing to grow old together when he left her at the altar. Actually, to be more accurate, he disappeared the night before the wedding. The rest of this performance is a recollection of the good times and how she misses him complete with projections, occasional music, and I've mentioned dance. Not a lot of it, but there is some of it. Four masked performers, now dressed primarily in green and wearing the latex latex face masks that I alluded to earlier, relay the story such that it is. They play a game where they name his great qualities and they speak about their sexual exploits. When they speak together, whether it's two or more, they are difficult to understand. They make it clear that he failed to live up to his promise to be there to stick fat. He offered love, warmth, comfort, adoration, care, safety, and more. But all that evaporated long ago. Yet each day, they hope in vain he'll show up on the doorstep. They wonder whether loving them was a burden, whether he actually loved them. They query where he is. 
short of feeling justifiably aggrieved and sorry for themselves, I'll, I just was left disappointed that the, the narrative didn't go any further. So I've given you everything, you know, now Jackie and Dave, and I think you're going to make more of it just by listening to this than I made by watching it. So it it didn't evolve as I thought it should have. And as so much did you I, wish you were home on the couch, Alex? I felt that at 70 minutes it was really, really stretched, and that's not good. And I did clock watch or, or watch watch or however you put that. I, look, as much as I would have liked it to, there, there was nothing that actually surprised me, Jackie, because it was established that the, the, the woman was left at the altar, right? And that's terrible. I'm not saying anything else, but okay, so – then we get the angst for the next 70 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever it was. They're called the the danger ensemble, the artistic director and designer. Now, one thing that I don't do, we've talked about this last week. Dave, you weren't with us, but uh, Peter, you'll remember we talked about whether one needs to see the shorts before a movie or what are the trailers and how that can destroy something, right? Yeah. Now, in a situation like this, I don't want to read about this play, I want to go along and I think the play needs to stand up on its own. So it was only after I, I then read the program after I'd basically put down my thoughts and then I learnt about it. And I think that's just wrong. I mean, when I say wrong, it's fine. I, a lot of people are going to be like that. My wife, I've mentioned before, she likes to look at the if we go overseas in, in days gone by, she likes to see everything we're going to see before we see it. And I, I, I want the total opposite. I don't want to have seen anything. I want to see it for, for myself and let my eyes take it in for the first time. So anyway, with all of that, the artistic director and designer of the show, Stephen Mitchell Wright, says the company's committed to exploring new territory, to creating theatrical experiments. And this is certainly that. He also says Day After Terrible Day is the first of a new suite of boutique works exploring our relationship with love, memory and sex. Only by clicking onto the Theatre Works website, which is where this is showing, in St Kilda, after I exited, did I learn more about the production. And there it tells me that Day After Terrible Day is based on a true story. It's based on the story of a South African-born Sydney woman named Eliza Emily Donathorne. She was jilted on her wedding day and found 30 years later, still in her bridal gown, the wedding feast uneaten and decayed, turned to dust. So there you have it. Now, notwithstanding this revelation, I'm still left asking just who this theatrical experience will appeal to. It's a little bit Miss Havisham, Alex. It, very much so. Yeah, it's, it's a, that's a good analogy. Perhaps this is one for the artsy crowd. Uh, it, Dave, it certainly would have fitted comfortably into the recently completed Melbourne Fringe Festival. Did you see any or many shows during the Fringe? Yeah, I did. I saw a few, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, what, that's what I meant before. You do get hit and miss shows. So, yeah, sometimes you'll find an absolute gem and sometimes you'll go to a show and go, what did I just watch? Yeah, I mean, look, I found the piece, as I mentioned, stretched and without much to commend it apart from the bizarre. I mean, look, I, I, I'm i not saying don't see it, but I'm saying be warned this is not your traditional theatre. And obviously that's not what they were trying to do. The Danger Ensemble was trying to push the envelope. They've done that 
But, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't really my cup of tea. It's on there till the 12th of November. I like the fact that the that Theatre Works as a venue does all sorts of different things. And I'll be intrigued to see where they go beyond this. You know, I, I was they were very gracious in inviting me and I'm I'm kind of pleased I, I saw it, but I wanted to have a, an experience where surprise is so important. Peter, what how on on if you look at various ingredients in a film, and I know you see film and not theatre, how where would you put the element of surprise in terms of importance when it comes to seeing something, anything. I think challenging films, uh, films that uh, uh, twist their narratives or change their storylines, and we've seen that in some recent horror films, I, I think it's uh, that can be very impressive and uh, as long as it's done well. Well, I think it's important, Dave. Where do you see surprise? Even, even if it's a conventional story, not knowing everything about it adds to my enjoyment. Does it add to yours? Oh, definitely. One of my favourite things about cinema is twists that you don't see coming. Mm. All right. And uh, remember the movie On Son D. There's a good example of one. Um, that was that just blew my mind when I saw that. Jackie, you saw that, didn't you? Yes, yes. And surprises are great, but you do want to know by the end to be able to wrap it up and know know what did happen. Well, that's an interesting one. Generally speaking, I would agree with you, but on occasions, and I know, Peter, you and I have spoken about this in the past too, allowing us as an audience to sort of formulate our own view of, of how things finished or didn't, uh, that can also, even though uncomfortable to some, that's also got merit, hasn't it? It, it definitely has, especially films that leave you thinking, leave you discussing the uh, the storyline or the issues that are presented without giving you a very uh, happy or traditional conclusion. I think that can be very effective. Mm, absolutely. So, look, that was worth having a discussion about because it was so decidedly different. Now, Jackie, just because we were talking about sort of churchy type stories, and I mentioned even though you haven't seen Gloria Vale, uh, you 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 have seen documentaries about the family, etc. Have you not in the past or read about the family? Yes, familiar with that. Yes, familiar with that. Now, I, I suppose that the difference to me between Gloria Vale and the family is that we know the ending. With Gloria Vale, we don't. Now, I. If I mentioned Gloria Vale to you, Jackie, I knew nothing about it before seeing it. I know you haven't seen the film. Does that mean anything to you or not? No. No. It meant nothing to me. Dave, to you, were you familiar with the story before you watched this this documentary? No, knew absolutely nothing about it. And even more disturbingly, I've spoken to friends in New Zealand who knew nothing about it either. Seriously? Wow. Because this this happened in New Zealand. And Peter, I'll ask you, did you know anything about Gloria Vale? I've been to Christchurch and, and I've heard about this uh, collective or this group, um, but I didn't know much about them until seeing this film. Okay, so it's 89 minutes, it's M-rated, it's, it's, it's a New Zealand fundamentalist church, Jackie, and it was founded in 1969 by a person called Neville Cooper, although I don't think he's referred to in this documentary as Neville Cooper, because he changed his name to Hopeful Christian. Yeah. So this this church is under the spotlight in the documentary. The community is located on the west coast of the South Island, and it's home to about 600 people from 70 families. 
It stands accused of slave labour and exploiting women who are seen dressed in long blue dresses with white highlights and also wearing white bonnets. So it's accused of slave labour, exploiting women and children. And it pushes the point, this documentary, that everyone, pardon me, is subject to the say-so of the church leaders, that women have to adhere to the wishes of men and are workhorses. A court case is mounted by a man called John Reddy, who was excommunicated by the church after reading religious material that was not produced by Gloria Vale. John was born inside the compound, that is, the church, and left behind his wife and children when he was excommunicated. He has been left traumatised by his experience. Also brought up inside Gloria Vale was his sister, Virginia Courage, who also left and tells of what she encountered. So does John. It appears that women are mandated to procreate and have large families. Living conditions are less than ideal. The documentary includes interviews with a couple of barristers, a human rights investigator, a former police detective, and the manager of a grievance organisation. Vision includes historic and often ropey home video. We learn that when someone joins Gloria Vale, they give up their individual assets in favour of the Christian community. Gloria Vale set up a charitable trust that's apparently worth, now get this, more than $60 million. I, I presume that's $60 million New Zealand, which is almost the same as Australia. It owns farms, cattle, uh, runs 4,000 4, head of cattle, honey business. It's involved in oil well exploration. I mean, yeah, what, what this has to do with the church, I don't know, but it's a way of making money. Some members of the church, including its founder, have been found guilty of sexual offences. And later, we're introduced to John and Virginia's mother, who is still a member of the church and gave birth to 13 children and has 75 grandchildren. Some of her experiences are laid bare. So one court case leads to another, and as the documentary ends, legal action continues. That is Gloria Vale. Now, does that interest you, Jackie, as somebody who hasn't seen it but knows about the family? Oh, very much. A doc documentary um, style is uh, great watching. I'd love to see it. All right. So let's start with you, Dave, on this one. It, it's been co-written and co-directed or written and co-directed by Noel Smythe. Is it Smythe or Smith? S-M-Y-T-H. I'm not sure about the pronunciation. Alongside Fergus Grady. And the pair last collaborated on another doco I saw called Camino Skies. So did this impress you or not, Gloria Vale? It did. It's an awkward documentary. I, I had the um the chance to actually interview the two guys that put this documentary together. And it, to me, it's not as good as the other documentary that comes out this week, Firefront, which I thought was brilliant. Um, but that is largely because they were hamstrung a lot with this documentary with um legal stuff. Um but look, I take my hat off to them for doing this documentary because, as they said during the interview, not a lot of people have ever actually gone out and made a documentary about this largely because the guys behind Gloria Vale allegedly have the inkling to uh, to do some things to stop these things from happening. Um, and these two guys were quite afraid when they were making 
this film about what would happen. Um, but yeah, I take my hat off to them for getting this out there. I think it could have had a lot more impact if we'd heard more from some of the victims, because there's times during this documentary where you kind of think, well, is this really what's happened or is this just a guy with a grievance against these people, which is unfair, I know, because it's pretty horrific what happens. But I think I would like to have heard more interviews with victims. They talked about the fact that there's a, a charity that's been set up that people who have left Gloria Vale have become part of. I would like to have heard more of their stories as well. I still think it's a great documentary and I think it's a good documentary, but I think it could have been a little bit more hard hitting. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I reckon the negative perception of the church has highlighted several elements regarding the goings on inside are introduced, but it tends to meander and it it loses it loses momentum, Peter. And that's that bothered me. That the lack of finality is also a concern, even though the doco mounts a strong case. And you get the feeling that the church will do all it can to fight any legal action brought against it. I felt that it needed to be a bit more razor sharp, especially towards the last third of it. What did you think? To some extent I agree, but I think it does its best to try and portray a cult that isn't particularly well known. And I suppose um, having a couple of people who talk about their insights into being part of uh, this uh, this group uh, in Gloria Vale um, serves as something to give us uh, an insight into what was going on. I mean, there are some echoes to Scientology, uh, to other cults where people are pretty much brainwashed or convinced to be part of a group bit like communism, I suppose, to be part of a group uh, and not to question it and to uh, uh, accede to anything uh, that you're being told or asked to do because it's for the betterment of yourself and for the community. So I, I think a, a lot of that is revealed in the documentary. I can see the, the legal aspects of this because it's an ongoing community yeah. um, and they had to tread carefully. I think what we are told uh, still serves as a, a pretty good insight into this uh, rather strange and interesting cult. Well, it's not the first cult-like organisation that's faced opprobrium, and it won't be the last, I dare say. It, it shines a light on, on what is a secretive New Zealand community, which in recent times has received significant media coverage in New Zealand, I, I, I would suggest. But I would have liked to have seen even greater clarity and direction and more a horrible word, but specificity than what I saw on film here. I, I, it just lost me towards the end. And I, I, you know, last 20 minutes or so, I, I just, yeah, I would have liked to have seen more people talking. And I understand because of the legalities that that would have been potentially difficult. Uh, and we've got to tread carefully, even in terms of what we can say about it because of the ongoing legal action. So it's called Gloria Vale. It's rated M. Running time is 89 minutes. Dave, score out of 10 from you, please. Uh, six out of 10 for me. Six out of 10 from me and from you, Peter. Uh, look, I think it had a lot to offer and uh, there should be a sequel down the track, but uh, I, I quite liked it. I gave it seven out of 10. Okay, fantastic. Well, we've got now, Dave, because uh, I, I just can't see the clock here, can you give me a, an indication of where we're at? How many minutes have we gone? Because I'm afraid something's gone wrong with my timepiece. 
We are 47.45 in, which is fantastic. We have got time to speak about another movie which has opened this week, which really surprised me, and it's called Sissy. It's MA rated. It's 102 minutes. Cecilia, or Sissy, is this charming, good-natured influencer relaying messages of positivity to her 200,000 followers. And that is a large, large number. It's a far cry from her days as a pre-teen when she and her best friend forever, Emma, vowed to grow old together. They even buried a time capsule containing video footage of their shared affection. And now a decade on, having not seen each other, Sissy unexpectedly bumps into Emma again while shopping. Mm -hmm. Emma, played by Hannah Barlow, is all smiles, invites Sissy, Aisha D, to her bachelorette weekend at a remote cabin. All well and good. Problem is, turns out that the home where they're going is that of a girl named Alex, Emily de Margariti, who bullied Sissy mercilessly at school. Alex is now going to be the maid of honour at Emma's upcoming wedding to her fiancé, Fran, played by Lucy Barrett. Try as she does to fit in with this group, Sissy is sidelined by Alex and by Emma's other friends. The elephant in the room is a facial scar that Alex has, which came about as a consequence of her constant harassment of Sissy. So I say that again, Alex has got this scar on her face and she got it as a result of bullying Sissy. All these years later, Alex still hasn't forgiven Sissy, but things are about to get a whole lot uglier. It appears that Sissy is particularly accident prone and there will be blood spilt, no shortage of it. So this is, as a movie, both comedic and catastrophic. I love the fact I had no idea where the narrative arc in this movie was heading. It began as one thing, ended up as something else entirely. Dave, we were speaking about the element of surprise. There certainly is that in this movie. Sissy, is there not? Definitely. There are so many twists in this film. And look, I always believe that mixing horror and comedy is two of the hardest things that you can mix in cinema. There are a lot of filmmakers out there that try and do it, and there are a lot that fall by the wayside. My mantle for horror comedies is has always been Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which came out in 2010, a film that seemed to get the right mix of horror with the right mix of comedy. And I think Sissy is up there with this film because it does it so well. Delightful take on um, on, on influences as well. Um, I have a, a real hate-hate relationship with influences. Um, so, <laughs> Hang on, you're gonna, um, we'll, we'll, we'll pause there. Why hate hate? Um, I have real issue with people that uh, make money out of nothing, uh, out of doing nothing, I should say. And um, I see the behaviour of them at some of the events that I go to. And let's just say that I um, couldn't help but laugh recently when I saw an influencer, a drunk influencer, fall over at something. So, um, yeah. Oh, oh, now, now that's nice. You're, you're a nice guy. You can't wish somebody badly. Uh, it, you know, the, the uh, you, some people would admire the fact that they get something for nothing the way that they do. Oh, look, I only wished harm on her because she <laughs> hogged a poster for her photos for 10 minutes while she posed in every imaginable way possible. 
um, while little kids were waiting to have their photo taken. So, uh, yeah, that's why I laughed. But look, uh, fair enough. I've yeah. got to say to you that I, I might have told this story before, but I'll, I'll at the risk of uh, offending anybody by saying it again, I remember going to an event at Docklands many years ago now, probably six or seven, and it was quite a prestigious event. And at the table was a very nice young lady, and we were talking about what we did for a living, and she said, I'm an influencer. And my question at the time was what you can make a full-time living out of that. And yeah, so that that was long before it became a, a thing. Sorry, you go ahead. Talk about Sissy. Yeah, so this film, I think, portrays a, a really good kind of parody of what it's like to be an influencer. There's a few jokes in there, especially around the dinner table about um, about Sissy as an influencer. But look, I just thought this film worked because the comedy nailed it every time they went for a comedic part. There was a horror element to it, which um, fans of slasher films are, are going to enjoy. And it was kind of well-rounded with its characters as well, which came as a bit of a surprise to me. I saw this at Miff before there was a lot out there about the film. So, yeah, it was a complete surprise, but I thought it worked on most elements. Yeah, I mean, look, the element of surprise wins high plaudits from me in any artistic endeavour, and I thought Aisha D, wow, terrifically well cast as the lead around whom events transpired. Dominant displays, this young woman of contradictions, and her demeanour, her facial expressions really impressed me. And uh, I also appreciated the orientation of light and shade in the script by the writers and the directors, Hannah Barlow, who's the the one getting married, and and Kane scenes. They work together on a movie called For Now. Peter, what what about you and influencers? Do you like them? No, I don't like influencers oh. at all. But but that's not the point. The point no. is this uh, horror satire, uh, which uh, sort of uh, has a go at pop psychology and uh, social media and bullying, a whole range of things. Uh, I spoke to Hannah and Kane about this film, and uh, they were influenced by slasher movies, but wanted to undercut that sort of uh, idea with uh, with humor. And I think they've done it very successfully. The film, interestingly enough, has received three actor nominations, the Australian yes, Academy I noticed Award. That that's terrific. It is so damn good. I mean, it's the extremities in plotting here, Peter, and the execution. I reckon this is a really good movie. It is. I was very impressed by it. Fantastic. So be warned that the manifestations of violence are gory. So, you know, you, you need to go in there knowing that. It's rated MA for a reason. But it's quirky. It's engaging. I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10, Peter. Seven out of ten from me. And Dave? Seven out of ten from me as well. Fantastic. Now, Peter, just briefly, don't go into plot, but what movies would you recommend British and Jewish Film Festival, please? Well, for the Jewish, the Auschwitz Report is impressive, as is March 1968, uh, set in Poland, and Karaoke, the Israeli film. Um, they're three examples of some really high-quality films at this year's Jewish Film Festival. And anything further from the British? Um, a rogue Agent uh, from the British Film Festival is a film that surprised me because it, it started off in a particular way and then changed direction completely and uh, uh, I thought it was a very strong narrative. Lovely. There again, the element of surprise, which has been the big feature of this week's program. Jackie Hamilton, thank you so much for your time. Peter Krause and Dave Griffiths, great to have you back. You've been listening to First on Film and Entertainment. 